Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. A reading from Philemon 15 to 16. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so the situation of the book of Philemon, we speculate that Paul is in prison. The early speculation was that he's in Rome, but probably I think that a closer city, he may in fact be in Ephesus, somewhere that would be fairly close to Colossae, where Philemon and Onesimus has apparently is a runaway slave we think and has come to Paul in prison and has been converted to Christianity and Paul is sending him back with this letter the book of Philemon and so slavery is the biblical motif which gets at the all-pervasive economic social, psychological system of sin. And it's against this background that we understand what redemption is, you know, the book of Exodus, the idea of redemption. We understand redemption with the background of slavery. And so slavery is not simply the biblical metaphor for sin, but actually it's the concrete manifestation of what is meant by sin and in turn is precisely that from which Christ redeems. The very term redemption, you know, the idea of being bought out of slavery. You're no longer subject to commodification, to objectification, to materialization, to circulation in an economy in which human life is reduced to bare life without any intrinsic value. There are an estimated 27 million slaves in the world today. So in fact, in our day, slavery is more prominent probably than it ever has been. And in this human economy, the basic categories, you know, human, subhuman, citizen, alien, inclusion, exclusion, sovereign, subject, or just slave-free, This is really the way that the city of man, the law, is established. That is being inside the city with its laws and subjects and outside the city where there is no law are marked by slave and free. And I hope as I say all this you have in the back of your mind the one who was crucified outside the city as a slave. Because we know that crucifixion was only done to those who were non-citizens, those who fall outside the law. And of course, it's precisely the crucifixion of Christ that's addressing this prime issue in Scripture. And so the premise of the gospel is that being found outside the city, 
outside the law, outside the domain of what it means to be fully human. This exclusion establishes the inclusion. That is, the basis of being included is, well, we're doing that on the basis of who's excluded. And of course, we know that the place occupied by Christ is outside the city, outside the law, the place of the slave. Christ then establishes a new organizational principle, a new family. You know, this is the word koinonia, a new fellowship in his body, in which exclusion is no longer the structuring principle of inclusion. You don't need outside for inside. And so in this short book, Philemon, Paul masterfully knocks out all supporting presuppositions for continuation of the slave-master relationship in the church. After the gospel, after the writing of Philemon, you would think that slavery among Christians would be excluded, that it's an impossibility. And yet the reception of this smallest of books, the troubled reception of the book, and really I think is an indication of you know, how Philemon is accepted, is really a depiction of the fullness of the gospel of how that's accepted. And so the question arises with a little book like Philemon, whether Christians who fail to recognize the basis of this new koinonia, this new fellowship, in which there are no slaves and masters. There is no hierarchy of that kind, but there's only brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we fail to recognize this new understanding and comprehend the gospel? Or in fact, have we failed to comprehend the gospel if we don't see that slavery, this sort of hierarchy is abolished? And so the question I'm raising is, why this incomprehension? And first of all, let's look at the book of Philemon. It seems perfectly clear what the implications are. Look at verse 17. Paul tells Philemon to accept Onesimus back as if he is Paul himself. So he's sending Onesimus back with a group who are carrying the letter Colossians and Philemon. And so he says in verse 16, Philemon is to regard Onesimus as Paul himself, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so Paul's letter is filled with pathos for Onesimus. He calls him my beloved. In verse 10, look at this. He says, my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. But Onesimus has apparently come seeking Paul to mediate between him and Philemon. And he's become a Christian and now Paul is sending him back. But he's sending him back in a very different condition. He says in verse 12, I'm sending you my very heart. This is who I am. What you do to him, you do to me. And so Paul claims this personal kinship with Onesimus. And he identifies him with his own deepest feeling. 
the very center of who he is. Onesimus, by the way, you know, the useful one. His slaves were often given kind of utilitarian names. And Paul is going to say, he who was formerly useless to you and to me is now useful to both of us. He says in verse 17, if then you regard me as a partner, as a brother, accept him as you would me. I doubt, you know, after receiving this letter, whether Philemon will regard Onesimus as he formerly did. I, I imagine that he's going to respond that Onesimus is my brother in the Lord, that he's going to obey, you know, or listen to Paul's appeal. And there's an interesting thing here that he never asks that Philemon forgive Onesimus. So we're a little unsure quite what the situation is. You know, has Onesimus stolen money and run away? Or has he just come to Paul seeking to no longer be a slave? We really don't know. But here is the verse 15 and 16. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. He's going to become an eternal part of your family is the idea. I believe this is an application of the ethic of Christ. Paul is identifying himself with the slave. He's saying treat him as you would treat me. In other words, this is the very thing that Christ has done. He's put himself on the cross in the place of the slave. He undoes not only the oppression or seeks to undo the oppression of Onesimus, but I believe he's seeking to undo the kind of dehumanizing master-slave relationship which existed between Philemon and Onesimus. And of course, in this relationship, it's not just the slave that's degraded. We know it's the master that's degraded too. If you can treat people in such a way, it's degrading to both parties. Now Paul's point may, I think in fact it does, include the freeing of Onesimus. That is, he's no longer going to be a slave. Paul says that point blank. But it also may include, he said, I wish that he could come back and help me in my ministry. He's been a very useful to me. Again, a play on the word Onesimus. And this unity or koinonia that he, Onesimus is our brother Philemon. He's a brother to me. He's a child to me. I believe this koinonia is the very point of the gospel. That's the main thing, really, in the book of Philemon. It's the main thing in the gospel. I believe the gospel is meant to accomplish these other things. That is, I think it should end slavery. I think it should end oppression. There is a sense, I think, if slave master or inside outside inclusion exclusion is the makeup of the polity the city of man I believe there is a an overturning of the city of man of the law of man but the main thing is because of this new fellowship now what is not mentioned in the book of Philemon but we all feel it it's very much present you know, in Paul's maintaining, he says, Philemon, in verse 19, 
And Paul is using a kind of rhetorical strategy here. He says, now I'm not going to mention this. And of course, then he mentions it. Philemon, you owe me your very self. You owe me your life. Because Paul has been a father to Philemon also in the faith. And what is obvious is that a human life is on the line. The unmentionable but lurking reality is that Philemon as a master has the right to crucify Onesimus. A master can dispose of his property as he wills. And that's what crucifixion was. It was primarily a warning to other slaves not to do the very thing that Onesimus has done. Don't rebel. Don't run away. Because this is what will happen to you. Owning another human and denying them their humanity. You know, this is the very opposite of what Paul has done for Philemon. It's the very opposite of what Paul would do for Onesimus. But of course, this part of Roman slavery exemplified in the master's right to crucify his slave, that is directly addressed in the gospel by what has happened to Christ. It's precisely as a slave that Christ dies. Christ's citizenship in Israel, his place, you know, as part of the religion even of Israel, even his existence as being fully human. You know, you don't crucify someone who's fully human. You only do that to someone who's subhuman. That's the point of crucifixion, is to reduce the person on the cross to a kind of inhumanity. So all these things have been done to Christ. And of course, the point in the crucifixion is that Christ is defeating this power, this evil power. He's setting up a counter economy that we call the gospel, in which this kind of relationship can no longer endure. Crucifixion, resurrection, the root crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, what does it do? It removes the fear of death. How does the fear of death, you know, that's the controlling factor in slavery. You don't want to happen to you what happens to those on the cross. And so the pervasive presence of crosses in Rome was a kind of advertisement to the slaves. Remember your place, or this could happen to you too. Take away that fear, and of course there is no slavery. And yet Philemon, Christian Philemon, in maintaining the master-slave relationship, would seemingly disregard the cross. Can you be a Christian and disregard the meaning of the cross? I believe this is the unspoken fact. But when Paul says, charge to me whatever Onesimus owes. You know what Onesimus owes is his life. That's what's on the line here. What you would do to him, you do to me. And so Paul is imitating Christ in his willingness to identify with the slave. He is saying, take me, not him. And so I believe here is one of the small gems of the New Testament. It's revolutionary in its implications. 
I believe it's a worked example of the apocalyptic implications of the gospel. This small book calls for a reassessment even of what it means to be human. It calls into question the very founding structure of the economy. You know, slavery was sort of like gasoline today or energy. The slaves were the ones who did the work. And so it is a challenge to the Roman economy. But of course, I believe it's a challenge to every human economy. That is the hierarchy of relations. The accepted reality of Roman society is being challenged here. The seemingly revolutionary, and I just take it obvious, implications of Paul's gospel. Unfortunately, and here I'm going to turn to a kind of negative moment that I don't have an explanation for. But it turns out not to be so obvious throughout church history. That is, the reception of this little book and its clear implications is kind of strange. According to J.B. Lightfoot, the ancient church did not pay much attention to the letter because the gospel is not concerned with trivia. Some people said, oh, we shouldn't even have this book here. You know, who cares about this slave, Onesimus? We don't even know who, actually that's not true. The story is that Onesimus becomes the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Some assume it's the same Onesimus. Demetrius Williams traces this history of the early church. He says, although Philemon was included in the early canon list, there was little to no comment on it because no one apparently found any occasion to mention it. Oh, it's just a small book. No interest, no theological importance. It was thought it had no doctrinal content and that it wasn't quoted. So we don't have many quotations from the book. It seemed, he says, to contribute no development in Paul's theology. He goes on to describe, Williams describes the consideration of the letter as trivial, banal, beneath consideration, perhaps unworthy even of being in the canon. Now we do have early defense of the book in people like Theodore Mopsuesta, 350 around there. He defends the book precisely by changing the import of its message. And this is typical. He argues that God established different social roles and estates, and every individual should stay in his or her proper role. And he claims this is what the book demonstrates. And that's going to be typical. Chrysostom, Jerome do the same thing. Due to attacks on the book, they defend it. Chrysostom found a purpose for Philemon, he says, in addressing the situation of converted slaves. You understand a good portion of the early church was made up of slaves. He argued that when a slave is converted and faithfully continues his life as a slave, even unbelievers are able to see that slaves can become believers without questioning the present norms of the society. Now what he's saying may be true, but of course, I don't think that's the main truth in the book of Philemon. And so Williams shows this pattern of the interpretation in Philemon in which the book is used, oh, we can draw some moral lessons about, oh, a slave should know his place. We can draw some lessons about Paul's humility. But the remarkable thing 
I think, is the blindness to the moral implications of slavery spelled out in the book and actually spelled out in the gospel. There seemed to be a concern actually to protect. People were afraid of the radical interpretation of the gospel, of the radical interpretation of Philemon. They were afraid that it's a challenging the very institutions of society. And of course, I think that's right. And so they wanted to preserve its place in the canon by in some way arguing, oh, it's arguing for a kind of conservative understanding. And this is true up until the Reformation. Martin Luther, in his 1527 lecture on Philemon, viewed Onesimus as an example of a person who was misled by the idea of freedom. He argued that Paul respected the established legal rights of property and did not seek to abolish slavery. John Calvin, too, affirmed respect for the prevailing order and also emphasized Paul's request to receive Onesimus back into his service, seeming to miss the import of the book. Now, there certainly were those who advocated for the abolition of slavery, and I don't mean to leave that out. You know, you have the Donatists in North Africa. You have individuals like Gregory of Nyssa, actually the Cappadocian fathers. They all, you know, they had slaves, they had servants, and they decided this was wrong. There's various anonymous Christians throughout church history that Theodore talks about. But for the most part, this radical minority were silenced by the conservative majority. And this conservative majority appealed to the book of Philemon as if this book made the case for slavery, which it does not. I believe in modern eyes we can read this and say, oh, the implications of this are clear. But what this history of interpretation seems to indicate are the stifling effects of, first of all, Constantinianism, which we talked about, imperialism, nationalism, racism, that these are going to impact the gospel. And given the primary role that slavery plays as the background to sin and the very understanding of what sin is, to be blind to the gospel's implications for this institution is simply to be blind, I believe, to the fullness of the gospel. And maybe this blindness entails then a kind of refusal of the radical nature of the gospel. I believe the gospel is meant to overturn our world, and many refuse that. In Giorgio Agamben's picture of the history of the idea here, you know, this is going back to Aristotle. You know, what is the city of man? He pictures bare life as functioning as the basic stuff from which truly human life or life within the city or the, the polis of man is formed. And he describes that in this formation, there's a clear distinction between life inside the city, you know, that life accounted for by the law, by citizenship, by being fully human, and life excluded from the city. See, if you're not a citizen, you're not, you're not covered by the law. You're outside the city. So within life, there is a necessary division, he says, to divide between mere biological life and the good life of the city. Everybody shares a biological life. And the marker, though, of these two forms of life 
Aristotle defined by opposing the fact of living, tozen, to politically qualified life. Same word, toyuzen. That is that you're given an additional quality. You're born with regard to life, but existing essentially with regard to the good life. That's the structuring principle of the judicial and political order constituting the city. For there to be an inside, there must be an outside, is the simple idea. So that excluded life is an essential part of the structure of the city. You don't have masters apart from slaves. You don't have an aristocracy apart from the common man. That is, there has to be a ruling class on the basis of a class that is ruled. This is from Agamben. In Western politics, bare life has the peculiar privilege of being that whose exclusion founds the city of man. Whose life is it that we see on the cross? Oh, there is life reduced to bare life, a kind of subhuman life. And so the power of the state or sovereign power establishes itself through this power of exclusion. The power of saying who's in and who's out. This is the power of the sovereign to decide the state of exception or to decide who can be crucified, really. Who falls outside the city? Who is subject to random killing? The slave makes the master. And of course, it's the sovereign who decides master and slave. And in ordering this arrangement, he establishes the law. To challenge this order, and that's the thing that people fear, to challenge this order is really to challenge the accepted consensus of the city of man, what it means to be human. Agamben notes that bare life is transformed through a particular relation to language, through instantiation of the voice, having a voice in the polis. He says, quote, there is politics because man is the living being who in language separates and opposes himself to his own bare life and at the same time maintains himself in relation to that bare life in an ex inclusive, exclusive relationship. And so language or having a voice in the polis is the saving element from this kind of bare life. Those rendered voiceless within the city they're synonymous with those outside the city, the slave. That's the choice then, I think we're given with the gospel. The choice appears to be between the logos of man, the city of man. And this city requires that there be an outside class, that there be the foreigner, that there be the stranger, that there be a dividing wall, and that some are found inside the wall and some are found outside the wall. Or we have the all-inclusive Logos of God, capital L, the communion of Christ. And there is no question that the implication of the gospel is all-inclusive. As Paul presents it throughout his writings and as it's concentrated here in Philemon, he's challenging, I think it is a challenge, to the status quo of the law. After all, that's Paul's gospel is a challenge to Judaism, as it's understood. It's a, an apocalyptic breaking in of a new order of culture, the kingdom of God, the city of God, a new kind of humanity, 
a new koinonia. And this is the nature of the gospel. This revolutionary understanding. It particularly pertains to slavery. And the very troubled history that we've traced here. And the kind of enduring nature of slavery. And in the troubled reception of this little book. The issue is at the very core of the gospel. The very core of the construction of human society. The decision then is between the city of man and the city of God. And we have to decide where we are citizens, to whom we are loyal, and to whom do we owe our allegiance. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.